hospital appointment is taking too long They told you your doctor could move it along Physio said I can get you an MRI I'm afraid they're wrong You want a letter for the council Noisy neighbours mould on the wall But I won't write a letter Because it won't do a thing They all go straight into the bin I know you're angry, but don't shout at me I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry I want to help you, but there's no more that I can do I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry It's not my fault, please, why can't you see? If you want to change things and write to your MP They call us the gatekeeper, we've got no key I'm sorry, but this is not my fault Test has come back at normal Two weeks for a GP is unacceptable Have you ever stopped to think why you're in this mess? Why did you water the test? You want a COVID letter for your holiday By tomorrow so that you don't get delayed But 20 pounds is too much for you to pay Even though your holiday's five grand I know you're angry but don't shout at me I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry I want to help you, but there's no more that I can do I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry It's not my fault, please why can't you see If you want to change things and write to your MP They call us the gatekeeper, we've got no keys I'm sorry, but this is not our fault Have you stopped to ask why we're in this mess? It's not your GP, but your government They haven't prepared for what we need We're still bailing out the bankers While the rest of us bleed I know you're angry, but don't shout at me I'm angry too, but not at the same thing They call us the gatekeepers, we've got no keys I'm sorry, but this is not mine I know you're angry, but don't shout at me I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry I want to help you, but there's no more that I can do I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry It's not our fault, please, why can't you see? If you want to change things, then write to your MP They call us the gatekeepers, we've got no keys I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry I'm sorry, but this is not my sorry But this is not my fault Of course, no one knows who their MP might be next week. It's Friday, the 8th of July, 2022, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. (music) 
Welcome to the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. My name is Neil Tucker and as per usual, I'm here to take you through the next 20 minutes looking at some of the latest news and research relevant to us in general practice. And what a crazy week it's been. So Boris Johnson is out and we will shortly have a new prime minister. He might still be in office if he'd have just learned some lessons from general practice communication and honesty are fundamentals and if a mistake has been made it's almost always better to pick up the phone explain to the patient what's gone wrong why it's gone wrong and what we can do about it together and then take it on the chin apologize be humble Boris could have said yes I was informed that a certain MP was a drunken sex pest but I thought I'd still give him a second or perhaps third or fourth chance because after all he is one of the few people that still support me and promote him to a job that is effectively party sanctioned bullying. On reflection I admit that was a mistake. Admittedly the optics of that wouldn't be great but it's better than saying nope never heard of it who is this guy anyway and then have a bunch of your own people going, actually, we told you in some detail that this is a problem. We told you that repeatedly. And there's photos of you both jumping up together. Um, we're not going to take the fall for you here. It's a bit like if I had a patient who perhaps almost died of a severe GI bleed. And then when we review things, I just look, oh, no, didn't know anything about that. I'm quite surprised. And then the MDU shows me the Docman letter saying about the person's previous GI bleed, asking me to stop his naproxen, and I've clearly signed off the letter. Not just that, I've actually highlighted the key points. And then despite all of that, I've doubled down by giving him an SSRI and some low-dose aspirin. Now, of course, all the issues with the Prime Minister means that we also have a new Health Secretary for England. I'd talk about him a bit more, but what's the point? He won't be in the job next month. Um, I often wonder what our Scottish, our Welsh, our Northern Irish colleagues make of this constant shitstorm we seem to exist in in England general practice. Let me know. Hot topics at mbmedical.com. Email me. I actually rather enjoy all this political discord. So maybe that's why I'm in a good mood. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's the tennis. Maybe it's just getting over a five day cold. It might be because I did a face to face hot topics course this week. It's the first one I've done in almost a year. It's the second one I've done in two and a half years. Only two face to face courses in two and a half years. It seems absolutely crazy. And I'll be honest, for all that I actually quite like doing the online courses that we do with MB Medical, um, and boy, have we done a lot of online courses over the last two years. It was great being able to see people and actively actually chat to people face to face. Um, hello to Sandeep and Ed and everyone else I spoke to down in Chichester. Hopefully we'll see you this time next year. I hope that none of you caught my non-COVID cold, perhaps the only downside of actually seeing people face to face. Now, the week before I was at the RCGB conference, all also face-to-face, -face, and that was really good. Good to see a few people I've not seen in ages, and good to see some of the new research that's coming out for, um, relevant for us in general practice. My favourite bit of research that I listened to was from a GP in Denmark. Now, in Denmark, lots of GPs use point-of-care ultrasound to help aid their diagnosis. And she'd done some research on the pros and the cons, the potential for driving adverse events. And the conclusion was that the level of adverse events was pretty low. The benefits are often quite significant. So the use of the point of care ultrasound changed the diagnosis or cemented the diagnosis in somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of cases. 
wouldn't it be great if you could distinguish what's going on in someone's lung? Is it infection? Is it an effusion? Um, do you need to send that person in? Do they have an enlarged bladder? Do you need to put that catheter in right now? The idea of this ultrasound is not to do a full abdo pelvis ultrasound. It is to do targeted ultrasounds to answer a very specific clinical question. And I would love this technology. I think it'd be really cool to be able to train up and use these extra skills. But we just don't do it over here. Apparently there is one GP in the UK that does point of care ultrasound. If that GP is listening, please let me know how you found it. And how do we all get um, to start doing this? Two other highlights. So Sir Michael Marmot taking the stage and talking about the increasing level of health inequalities. And refreshingly, he wasn't talking about what we need to be doing in general practice to improve health inequalities. He was showing that the root of health inequalities goes much deeper. Um, it comes down to government policy. Over the last decade, council funding has gone down by something like £400 per person on average. But those cuts have been even greater in deprived areas. The places that need it the most are getting even less cash. He suggests putting equity at the heart of all government policy. The government haven't listened so far. I'd be very sceptical that a new prime minister is going to change that. The other highlight was a keynote speech from Michael Marshall and Anna Stravdal. She is the head of... Wonka. If you haven't come across Wonka before, it is effectively a worldwide organization that tries to um, encourage general practice to get together and promote general practice. Their keynote speech was all about the benefits of continuity. And I think we all subscribe to that, even if that is quite challenging at the moment. It might not necessarily have to be personal continuity. It could be team continuity. There's a big role for that as well. But the bit that I took home from this talk was not so much about that side of things, but it was Anna Stravdal's recommendation about staying alive. So if you want to maintain continuity, you've got to stay alive. And she, she partly means don't die. That's obviously good advice. But I think she also means general practice has to stay alive. And to do that, we need to remember to have some fun. Now, that's not just, as Jeremy Hunt says, bringing fun back into general practice. That's fun for ourselves, taking time for yourselves, for your family. Just do something that you enjoy. Live a little. Otherwise, the job's not sustainable and that continuity will be lost. Okay, on to the research. And today we are going to have a look at three papers. So the first is one in the BJGP on the rise of prescribing for anxiety in the UK over the last 15 years. We're going to have a look at a JAMA paper on the Association of Bariatric Surgery and Cancer Risk and Cancer Mortality. And then we're just going to have a little think about vaccines. And there's a paper about vaccinating for RSV that seems pretty pertinent at the moment. Let's kick off then with this BJGP paper on anxiety prescribing. This feels quite topical at the moment because NICE have just released a new guideline or updated guideline on the management of depression. It's taken them something like 13 years to come up with this new guidance. We'll be covering it on the next Hot Topics course in some detail. But two of the key treatment recommendations in that guideline seem to be at odds with each other. So one is to try and reduce reliance on pharmacological therapies for managing less severe depression, but also giving patients the option to essentially choose antidepressants if they want them, making it feel a little bit like these are drugs on demand. 
And I think we all acknowledge that there's been a huge rise in antidepressant prescribing over the last 10 or 20 years for people with depression. But what about people with anxiety disorders? Because these seem to be becoming much more common, and yet we don't have the data to show whether we're treating this more often, and if we are, whether we're using short-term or long-term treatment. So this was a population-based cohort study pulling data out of our UK primary care databases between 2003 and 2018. They looked for patients that had been coded with a variety of anxiety disorders and also had a prescription of any medication that was considered an anxiolytic. So, of course, that includes benzos, but also they were looking at beta blockers, SSRIs and other antidepressants as well. The results show that prescribing for anxiety almost doubled in the 15 years that they examined. The good news is that actually the rate of benzo prescribing went down and the duration that people were having long-term benzos also went down. Not a huge amount, but some at least. But that's been dramatically overtaken by prescribing in antidepressants. Between 2008 and 2018, there's practically a linear increase in prescribing of antidepressants that doesn't even seem to be tailing off. So now that we're into the pandemic and we seem to have uh, eventually seen this mental health crisis that they were expecting at the start of it, you wonder if that's just continued or even perhaps accelerated. Public Health England data suggests that around 20% of the adult population are on an antidepressant each year. It's an absolutely staggering amount. What started this rise in prescribing from 2008? Well, NICE's depression guideline was published in 2009. Guidance from them on generalised anxiety disorder followed shortly afterwards. Both of these gave clinicians instruction to prescribe. So this may have contributed, but of course we're already seeing these rises. Some of that may have been down to the normalisation of the use of antidepressants, which is something that has been driven by the media and that may well have been driven by the actual manufacturers of these drugs themselves. We do have data supporting these drugs. We've also got data now that shows the downsides of them as well. Things like withdrawal symptoms, things like increased risk of bleeding with SSRIs, things like sexual dysfunction that may or may not resolve once you stop the medications. So just like the new NICE guideline is renewing our focus on psychological therapies rather than just defaulting to medication, maybe we need to see something similar now for anxiety disorders to just reframe the role of antidepressants in treatment there. Next, have a look at a JAMA paper on the association of bariatric surgery with cancer risk and mortality in adults with obesity. So there's been quite a lot of research published into helping people lose weight with obesity. And on the course, over the last few years, we've presented data that shows that people can successfully lose weight and keep it off for at least a few years by using dietary methods alone, albeit sometimes intensive low-calorie, highly controlled diets. And I've always thought this is great news. Here we've got something that supports this role. It's going to hopefully help drive services so that people can have better access to these treatments that might be helping them. And I've always been slightly surprised that one of my colleagues on the MB Medical team, Stephanie DiGiorgio, she is an expert in obesity and overweight. She has written our um, NB Medical's Managing Overweight and Obesity course. She presents it. And if you've never been on the course, 
definitely check it out. It is a huge eye-opener. And until then, I'd never really understood why she was so in favour of bariatric surgery and not so positive about these dietary methods. The reality is that losing weight is hard. So there's multiple mechanisms within your body that are designed to prevent you losing weight. You put that in the context of someone who's maybe... Um, genetically predisposed to gaining weight and then put that person in the context of an environment where we are surrounded by easy access to cheap high energy food, add in deprivation, add in work issues, add in family time and it becomes very very complicated. There's plenty of data already that shows bariatric, bariatric surgery is a great way to lose weight, particularly over the longer term. And that confers huge benefits in terms of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular risk. This new paper in JAMA reminds us of two issues. So firstly, that bariatric surgery is a very effective treatment and that we should be thinking about this option for our um, very overweight patients more. And secondly, it reminds us that obesity is associated with cancer. So this was a retrospective study of 30,000 patients. 5,000 had undergone bariatric surgery. 25,000 were matched controls in a non-surgical group. US adults with a BMI of over 35, if they'd had bariatric surgery, they'd either had a gastric bypass or a sleeve gastrectomy. They then followed them up over the next 10 years and looked to see A, how much weight they'd lost, and then B, did they develop cancer and did they die from cancer? The difference in weight between the two groups was around 25 kilograms or about 20% of their body mass, obviously favouring the bariatric surgery group. But the shocker was that the incidence of cancer at 10 years was just under 3% in the bariatric surgery group and just under 4% in the non-surgery control group. So an absolute difference in developing cancer of 2% based on whether you had had surgery or not had surgery. The chance of dying from cancer was approximately double in the non-surgery group. So they concluded that among adults with obesity, bariatric surgery compared with no surgery was associated with a significantly lower incidence of obesity-associated cancer and cancer-related mortality. Now, of course, we can't definitively extrapolate from this data and say that any form of weight loss will reduce your cancer risk, although we do know that cancer risk does go up as your weight goes up, so it's reasonable to think that it might go down if your weight goes down. This paper acts as a reminder to us that perhaps we should be more proactive in discussing issues around weight with our patients and a reminder to us that for those patients who are interested in trying to lose weight and they have engaged with us and they have tried things in the past, they have tried lifestyle and exercise, well then it's our responsibility to remember that there are options beyond that and that bariatric surgery can be highly effective and it can prevent a huge range of complications including cancer. Okay, so let's have a think about vaccines for a second. And in fact, there's three papers I'm going to really quickly touch on in the New England Journal of Medicine. Two of these are COVID papers. So firstly, are you a parent? Are you still sitting on the fence about whether to get your children vaccinated for COVID or not? 
Our first paper looks at vaccine effectiveness in children. So 136,000 children were vaccinated over the study period and then compared with unvaccinated controls. And data shows that the Pfizer vaccine provides moderate protection against SARS-CoV-2 and symptomatic COVID-19 in children aged 5 to 11. What does moderate protection mean? Well, after one vaccine, that prevents 18% of symptomatic COVID infections. After two vaccines, it prevents 48%. Now, this study was done just as Omicron was becoming the dominant variant. So it does provide us some information about the latest strain of SARS-CoV-2. Is it enough to make you change your mind about vaccination if you're sitting on the fence with it for your kids? Only you will be able to decide that. Now, the next paper is quite interesting. So this was another paper on coronavirus, and this was looking at the relative merits of natural immunity versus vaccination or indeed a combination of both. So this was taken during December through to late February in Qatar, again assessing Pfizer, but also the Moderna vaccine. Interestingly, hybrid immunity, so you've had the genuine infection plus you've had vaccinations, confers the highest level of protection against future infection. So the effectiveness of preventing new COVID infection, if you'd had previous infection and three doses of Pfizer was 77%. Compare that to just having three doses alone and no infection, that was 52%. And if you'd had previous infection and two doses, it was 55%. So actually, if you've had COVID, you're in a pretty good position. And if you're going to have your vaccinations, make sure you have three of them. There's a big jump between two and three doses. I should also say, actually, for severe or fatal COVID, all of these options showed strong effectiveness. So whatever you've done, it's going to help prevent you die from COVID. But whilst it's understandable we've been focusing on COVID a lot over the last two years, it is not the only virus that kills. And the last paper is looking at RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. And this is a really interesting issue because we tend to think about this as a childhood infection causes bronchiolitis in younger people. But it also affects older adults as, and, as the paper says, is an important cause of illness and death in that group. How important an issue is this? It's one of those times where existing data is a bit mixed. So RSV accounts for somewhere between 1 in 10% of adult respiratory infections, uh, a higher percentage potentially in people who've got chronic diseases or transplantation. And data suggests for people in a care home, around 5 to 10% each year will get RSV. And of that, around 2 to 5% will die from it. Now, I appreciate there's an argument that we've all got to die from something, but you don't want to die before your time. And to be honest, having just come off the back of five days of an acute respiratory tract infection, a caught off of my five-year-old, which very possibly could have been RSV, if there was a vaccine that could stop me getting that, I would take it. Well, one might not be far off. So this is another paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is a phase two study, so still relatively early days, which randomized healthy adults to receive a single IM injection of uh, the vaccine or placebo. And then they shove a bunch of RSV up their noses after one month and then see what happens over the next 12 days. And the results are positive. So the vaccine has 
87% efficacy for symptomatic RSV infection and doesn't appear to kill people. So there was no adverse events in either group. Now, this was only 70 patients. Clearly, we're going to need to have much larger studies in this area. But it's a very exciting area. The development of new vaccines, new technologies, ticking off some of those annoying illnesses that all of us could do without. That's it from me for today. Of course, um, let's not forget that a big dose of vitamin D is quite helpful in preventing infections as well. So do go and enjoy the weather over the next few days. It's going to be fantastic. In fact, it's going to be hot as hell. So keep a mind out for heat stroke in you and your patients. And if you want a bit of a reminder about heat stroke, have a look at our free NB Keep It Simple summary on heat stroke that I did a year or two ago. I'll put the link in the podcast description. Enjoy yourself, everyone. Remember, in the words of Anna Stravdal, stay alive. Bye-bye.